What both of us have found is that we both get questions from various people about kind of how the whole process works. You know, how do you find a deal? How do you know what to pay for a deal? Okay, now I've got a deal. What do I do? And what are the next steps? Welcome to Shovel Ready, here to inspire, educate, and entertain you by breaking down the real estate development process. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and leave a positive review to help us attract more quality guests. And now, your hosts, Jason Chow and Lynn Curry. Welcome, everybody, to Shovel Ready. My name is Jason Chow. I'm here in the LA Pasadena area. And with me is Lynn Curry, all the way from Austin, Texas. Lynn, why don't you say hi and introduce yourself a little bit? Hey there, how are you? I am Lynn Curry, as Jason said, and I do development and construction in Austin, Texas. Been doing it for, well, I started in the real estate industry as an investor in mid-90s. Probably my first purchase was in 96 and have kind of gone through a bunch of different iterations of that. And now I am doing development, small subdivisions, construction, and spec homes and custom homes. Okay, great. And yeah, I'm out here in the Pasadena SoCal area, you know, with mostly residential as well. And I kind of fell into it myself that, you know, my dad wanted to take on a project and it wasn't going too well. And I was just, I was headstrong and kind of, I'll be damned if we have to lose money on this one and little by little figure it out, how, how the development process works and maybe not I don't know if it's the best way or the worst way. It's definitely a more painful way, probably. It is a way. How about that? Is yeah, it is a sure. way. Yeah. So I think for us, you know, we've we gone through a lot of this process, and we were. Why don't you share with us a little bit, Lynn, how how this this podcast, this idea came about? Yeah. So Jason and I met several years ago at a at a conference, and over the years became friends and kind of would bounce ideas off each other. And what both of us have found is that we both get questions from various people about kind of how the whole process works. You know, how do you find a deal? How do you know what to pay for a deal? Okay, now I've got a deal. What do I do? And what are the next steps? So we started batting around the idea of putting together a podcast and and Jason came up with kind of a format and doing it seasonally. And I'll let him talk about what we're going to do this first season and we're kind of going from there and we're going to see kind of where it takes itself and see what people enjoy and make changes along the way if we need to and and keep covering topics that people keep asking us about. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know we talked about, you know, wanting to be a little bit different, not just interview a bunch of developers and rinse repeat kind of things. Just, I mean, it feels like podcast is sort of the new blog. A lot of people are just using this to to promote or as, as a marketing tool, but, you know, I think we really, we really wanted to, you know, share the process or knowledge we gained throughout the process. And, you know, folks can actually expect the rest of the episode, just really in a chronological order. Today, we're going to talk, you know, talk about analyzing deals and how to run some of these numbers or things to look at while we're, before we like make an offer or while we're under contract. And then later on, you know, we'll talk about different architects and designers, engineers, and and the GC. So it kind of naturally worked out very well. Where it almost it's almost like a mini class, right? Like we're just going from beginning to all the way at the end, how to finish this building to either sell it or lease up or to to rent it. If you're more of a build to to hold kind of guy. 
So why don't we jump into it, Lynn? Market study. I know you're in Austin. I grew up in Austin as well. You know, let's assume somebody's somewhere in the U.S. Like, how do you decide where to build? That's we can we can talk either on a broad level, a high level, or say if you want to use Austin specific as an example. Yeah, I can I can use Austin, but I think it I think. Look, there's everybody's going to have their way in the way they analyze their numbers, but I think you know the the basic formula is pretty simple. You need to be able to purchase the land, do the construction to create whatever you want to create, and then come out on the other end if you are successful and either be able to sell it for more money than you built it for, or at least as much. I mean, let's let's you know sometimes sometimes you only get out of it what you put into it, but the goal is to not to lose the money or you know, build it in such a way that you can rent it or hold it or whatever. And your numbers work. Nobody, nobody wants to lose a ton of money on anything that they do. Cause that's, I mean, look, we all have our hobbies that we spend money on, but for most people, this is a way to make money, not as a way to just keep themselves busy and, and do a hobby. So that's, that's at the end of the day, no matter where you are, you've got to understand those basic numbers. And I think the easiest, the easiest way, probably if you're, if you're looking to buy, do something and then sell is to look at the the splits in a let's just say a neighborhood. Say, you know, you can buy a house for two hundred thousand. Maybe you can sell it for six hundred thousand. Can you do what you want in that four hundred thousand dollars and still make money? And if the answer is no, the answer is no. I mean, if the if the newer houses are selling for two thirty and a fixer upper is selling for two hundred, you know, maybe you should look elsewhere. So it's it's on that level that portion of it's really simple. Now, of course, there's a lot of details and work that goes into that. But at the end of the day, that's what you're looking for. So, I mean, I have some sample um, performa, like they're usually a little bit uh, beefier than back of the napkin, maybe for folks that are on, watching this on YouTube, I'll, I'll share my screen a little bit. There's a lot of, I think just for, for terminology or setting the tables, the, the foundation, no pun intended, sorry. What are the stuff you're looking at when you, other than the numbers, you know, we're, we're talking yeah. about land, hard costs and the exit. What are the, some of the characteristics or factors with a piece of parcel of land that people should, should look at? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so just like Jason has, I have my, my back of the napkin spreadsheet that I use that has a few more things in it than just what I just touched on. And then from there, I go into a more complicated spreadsheet, assuming the back of the napkin numbers pan out and my more my more complicated spreadsheet has all sorts of stuff in it like taxes and financing and, and all that good stuff. But when I'm initially looking at a property, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put this all in the realm of doing new residential construction because that's the bulk of what I do. I do some other stuff, but but my daily my bread and butter is uh, spec homes or I'll do custom work, but for this conversation at Spec Homes, I do not do flips. So I'm not looking at a house that sells for $200 that I can fix up for $30,000. I'm looking at urban infill, tear down, brand new construction. So the things that I'm looking for, one is I I keep all my stuff concentrated into an area that I that I'm pretty solid on the numbers. I know what the land should be going for. I know what Generally, I should be able to sell a house for per foot. Now, obviously, that changes and it can change a little bit based on location, but I keep a pretty small, tight area that I that I do work in. And then from there, the big things are understanding what can actually be put on that lot from a land development and zoning code standpoint for 
for Austin. And Austin works a little bit different than LA. And there's a little bit of difference in the terminology, but essentially the end game is the same. There's some code that tells you the zoning and what can be built based on the zoning. And in my case, I'm looking for a certain type of residential zoning. And then beyond that, we've got some pretty basic calculations in Austin. It's basically, we can build 40% of FAR, which is Florida area ratio. And so I use that. The Florida area ratio basically gives you how big of a house you can Yeah, build. can so, we stay on what, so how, what does that calculation mean? Or how do yeah, so I'll, I'll give you numbers and I'll give you easy numbers. Let's say <clears throat> I have a 10,000 square foot lot, which by the way is a really big lot in the city of Austin. <laughs> Most lots here are 7,600, 7, but if you can get a 10,000 square foot lot, the numbers are easy, especially for a podcast. So at 40% FAR, I can build 40 or 4,000 square feet. So it's basically based on the size of the lot. So that's my first number I get. Now, there's other factors that come into play that may keep me from actually building that 4,000 square feet. In Austin, we have a very strict tree ordinance. So uh, if we've got protected trees, which are very typical on these lots, and I think in 12 years, I've probably picked up one lot that I haven't had to get tree permits on. So it's pretty common, you know, then I've got to go and look at where the trees are on the lot and see if that makes it difficult to build that square footage or what I'm going to have to do to work around those trees. The other thing, so that could reduce it a little bit. The other thing is uh, we have pretty strict impervious cover rules, meaning we can only cover with something 45% of the lot. So, you know, how are we going to position things? Can I get a two-car garage, a one-car garage, a carport? How does that all how does that all come into play? And then the other really, really, really important thing that I think people forget to look at are their deed restrictions. And deed restrictions are outside of, they're outside, at least in the state of Texas, any city rules and any county rules. It's it's private restrictions that are set over a property. And it may be that your deed restrictions say you can only build a one-story house. Or in in Austin, we can build on an SF3 lot, which is a type of zoning. We can actually technically build two dwelling units. Maybe the deed restrictions say I can only build one. And so we need to look at that, which is not necessarily a deal killer, but it gives a different type of deal that we're building. If I can build two houses, and for easy math, let's say I can sell them each for a million dollars, and houses in that neighborhood are going for you know, low end, 700, high end, 1.8 million, it's pretty safe to build $2 million homes. Now, if if I can only build one house on that lot and I'm going to be wanting to get, because of the size of it and everything, I'm going to want to try to get that 2 million. If houses aren't going for 2 million, can that neighborhood push that price? You know, so you've got all these little, these little things that are kind of in play um, that you, so you just need to know your area. And the best way to do that, honestly, is ask folks. You know, one, one thing I can I can tell you I found is that that people are willing to share information. You just have to find the people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about this industry. There are definitely people out there that, you know, they're they're secret guard, you know, like Gollum sure. from Lord of the Ring. Like they don't want to share anything, but most people are very open. I think I mean, you, you're the same and I, I try to do the same as well for folks that are just starting out. Just I think we all have gone through the the headache and the the problems that, you know, we're more than willing to see somebody not having to, to suffer the same same as we did. Real quick. So 
you mentioned about lock coverage. Lock coverage is technically mm-hmm. different than FAR, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what does lock coverage include that uh, you mentioned about impervious space? So that what does that include that doesn't factor into the FAR calculation? Uh, so like your driveways, your air conditioning pads, your sidewalks, any hard surface for impervious covers, any hard surface that water cannot go through. Now, the interesting thing, and this is, this is again, where ask around, you need to know your area. There are products that are out there that are technically pervious, so the water goes through them, that the city of Austin will not count as pervious. So even if I get a pervious concrete to do my sidewalks, the city of Austin on a residential project still says, eh, no, we're still going to count it as impervious. So there's nuances to it, but that's the kind of the, the general rule is anything that covers the ground where dirt can't go through it is going to be counted against that. Then we've got, I mean, we've got other things in it, like your building footprint can only be so big, but that usually doesn't come into play as much because of the way we design things and all the other rules kind of force that portion of it. So does the garage also factor into the FAR calculation or that's just like livable air? So technically garages could count as Mm -hmm. both. They do, but in in Austin, as long as we design it a certain way, we can get an exemption for the garage. We can get exemptions for garages. We can get exemptions for carports to a certain extent. There's, I mean, our land development code is absurdly long. I mean, like paid here, let's see if I can... And now I'm off the screen. Page is long. The architects that you work with should should know these things. But yeah, the, the garage counts unless you get your exemption. And that's a design thing. So usually we end up with an exemption for those. And earlier you were talking about deed restriction. Like where do these come from or can you get them changed? Uh, you can. So so where you get where you get them from, they're on file with the state, at least in, in Texas. Usually I get the title company to pull them and it takes the title company a day or two. It's not really that difficult and you can read through them. You can get them changed, but it's difficult. So what you get, these deed restrictions were usually created when the house was built or the the neighborhood was built. So when the platting was done and there are rules, a lot of them have, have rules that they can no longer enforce because basically the rules the rules of the world has changed so a lot of times what what you'll see is there are deed restrictions saying that people of a certain race can't live in a neighborhood or something like that that all has gone away because it's now against the law so any of those restrictions that are against the law just automatically go away but the other thing is you can get them changed but it's difficult you have to the way to get them changed is laid out in the deed restrictions themselves but usually it's something like you have to get 50% of the other owners in that, that fall in that deed restriction to agree to change the deed restrictions. Where do you Uh, get the deed restriction? Is it public information or where do you find? Yeah, they're, they're filed, I believe with the secretary of state, but the title, the title company usually pulls mine for me, (laughs) but they're, they're kind of like a, a warranty deed, wherever your state files, all that stuff. They have they have them. They're, they're filed with the paperwork when that when the platting is done or the house is built, and then as the house changes or owners, they get filed again. They kind of just keep they just kind of follow along with the property. What are some other stuff title company can pull f- for you that you should look at on the on the title report? They can pull they can pull easements, which is actually can be really important. Sometimes those are in the deed restrictions. Sometimes they're not. That should what are, also what are easements? 
Yeah. Okay. I'll, yeah. An easement easements are basically portions of a property that are dedicated for use with folks other than just yourself. So there might be an electrical easement that the electric company has because they've got wires going across the property. So it, it allows them to get access if they need to to work on the on the wires. And I mean overhead wires. It could be that there's a drainage easement that the the city put through so that water can flow through your property. And and the biggest reason they have that easement is so that you can't build something on it to prevent that drainage anymore, or if they need to get on the property to address it. Sometimes you see private easements where uh, somebody maybe can't can't access their property without crossing your property, or somebody can't, or somebody maybe has a power line that goes through your property. There's all, all sorts of different reasons for easements. And you just, you just need to know where they are so that you can decide if they're going to impede what you want to do or impact you negatively, or if you can, if you can work with them. The other thing we see are shared use agreements. So if you've got a property where the neighbor and you share a driveway, that would be a type of easement. So there's all different kinds of things. And it's, again, it doesn't necessarily mean the deal needs to be killed. It's just understanding what those are. So you know how to work around them. You don't want to be surprised with anything. Yeah, because it, it tells you where you can't build things maybe or certain res- right. restrictions that, like we were saying earlier, if you're thinking about building X, a house this big, and then this is where you want to put them. But then there are these things that, you know, not super apparent to people unless you actually look at these documents that says, well, actually, no, you can't, you know, so. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, the, big, the biggest one we see here that people get caught on because they haven't looked at the deed restrictions are they think they're going to be able to build two dwelling units and they can only build one because of the deed restrictions, or they think they're going to be able to build a second, a two-story house and the deed restrictions limit it to one story. And that's kind of the, oh, we didn't realize that. Yeah, we, we see that in California too, depending on the on the city. So sometimes it's very obvious too, like you go to an area and they have height restrictions or there's something in the code and just like, wait a second, why, why is everything here one story? Why is everything here two stories mm-hmm. kind of thing? So yeah, if something looks off, there's usually a reason. It's not, it's not usually that, you know, this one small 20 house section decided to all do the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, so while you're under contract, what else? I mean, do you guys usually do a survey or is the public records pretty accurate in Austin? Yeah. So we don't always have a survey before, before we come out of option. We do it while we're under contract because we're going to need it for the, for the close. We can usually get close enough to what we need. We've got our, our public tax records that, that we can, when we're doing our initial planning, we use that for the square footage of the lot one of the one of the big things we try to get is the tree survey so we can we can get where all the trees are so we can get the architect to start his massing and make sure if if we've got a ton of trees that we're not going to have any issues the other thing is if we're tearing down the house we want to know that we're going to be able to tear it down that the historical preservation board's not going to not going to prevent it or we're not going to have any big problems with that that that's probably once you've got quite a bit of experience probably one of the the ones you need to pay a little closer to like I, I can pretty much look at a, a yard and say, yeah, these trees are going to be a problem or these trees aren't. But the, the demo stuff can be a little tricky. How does um, that work in Austin? The hist- I mean, is there a database that you can check or do you have to call the city every time? Or? Nope. If you've got a house that's over 50 years old, although I've recently heard, I think they're changing it to 40. 
it has to go through the process where it goes in front of the preservation board and they kind of try to dictate whether you can tear it down, whether you can do a remodel, whether you can do a remodel with their input on the way it looks. You know, they've got, it's, I don't want to use the word nuanced because that's not what it is. It's just kind of one of those things that can be a little bit of an unknown. You would think that it's only for houses that seem historically significant, but you don't know. They're going to go do um, a little research on it. And it could be that somebody that they think of historical significance lived in the house, maybe in their childhood or something like that. So it's kind of an, it's kind of an unknown in a looser market. A lot of times what we'll do is not agree to close until the demo permit is in hand. The market right now is really tight. Seeing a lot of people just roll the dice on it because usually you can do something with it. It might just not be what you want to do with it. It speaks to the, to always, you know, you want multiple exits for everything you do. So just kind of, it speaks to just understanding, okay, if I can't do this, can I do this? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we got a lot of that going on in LA and SoCal as well. I mean, at least the fortunate thing with the LA is there's like a public database for all the planning data that people can look up pretty easily what the zoning, what it's zoning is for, how big is the lot. And if it's an HPOZ that usually for us, that means an automatic pass kind of thing. And sometimes it's buried in a specific plan or these yeah. overlaid zones too. And we're actually doing a project in San Gabriel. San Gabriel is the California history, you know, it's part of the mission trail that, you know, from Mexico mm-hmm. going up north. And they have a lot of, you know, in the downtown area, they have a lot of these old and historical and, you know, could be significant kind of buildings. And like you said, that city, you know, they recently changed their their code so that anything over 40 years in the specific area, you know, they're, they're very sensitive to it. And I remember talking to the city planner, I'm like, okay, so you're saying, I mean, 1980, like that, I mean, <laughs> I was born in 1983. So you tell me if I want to change a window, I have to come here and get a permit. And then she's like, yeah, that's what the public, that's what people voted for. I'm like, okay. okay. So we were buying this church and, you know, it was fortunately it worked out because we, while we were under contract too, like, you know, it's a pretty unique building, but it wasn't that big. It wasn't very big. And the reason it was selling was, you know, the, the bishop says they have like 15 parishioners and over time they either moved away or passed away. And now she's, he's down to like four or five. And while we were under contract, we like hired a consultant to do the study. And funny enough, looking through the building records and all that, there were a bunch of remodels or things that were pulled in the 70s. And we talked to the bishop as well because the the consultant was actually going to recommend we do not demo this because it was built like in the 50s. And what had happened was there was a fire and like the church burned down. So they rebuilt it. And even the bishop had pictures for it. So we used this and the, the consultant in the city is like, oh, yeah, okay, well, then, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes sometimes you have to do your own due diligence because they might not turn that stuff up. Yeah, to your point. I mean, like, like yeah. you know, it, yeah, like, because if we couldn't do what we do, like, we basically just pissed away $2 million for this one. Right, right. That's, and that's a, that's a big piece of rock to hold on to if you can't do anything with it and can't make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and back to your, you had asked earlier about the database. We do have databases with the city of Austin, just not for the historic. So we can, we can go and look up, you know, the zoning and the neighborhood plans, which are kind of like deed restrictions, but the neighborhoods, that's a, another thing that it's enough. It's city specific enough. We shouldn't talk too much about it in here, but it's another overlay of what you can do 
And the one thing I didn't mention on this, which probably isn't as relevant in LA and Southern California, but we also have flood zone stuff that a lot of folks will need need to look into. Like, what are you in a floodplain? Yeah, let's, that's let's a get really into that important part, thing. The, the yeah. natural hazard disclosure items. Mm-hmm. So, flood zone, you mean like the FEMA floodplain kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we also have our own, the city also has its own floodplain. It kind of follows this the FEMA one, but it's a little stricter. Okay. What yeah. are some other stuff you guys look at? Uh, the floodplain's a big one. You can end up with erosion hazard zones because we've got a lot of creeks that run through the city. And again, you just need to know what that means for your property. It's not necessarily a deal, deal killer, but if you've got an erosion hazard zone in you know 75% of your property, maybe it is. But like I, I looked at a property a couple of weeks ago that I was super excited about and really interested in. And I pulled it up and the entire thing was in the hundred year floodplain. And a lot of folks would be like, Oh, it's a hundred year. Now what, what, what's the big deal? My personal thought on that is, is that, you know, let's say somebody buys a house and, and lives in it for 25 years. They've got a one in four shot that they're going to get a flood in that house. If you don't build it above the floodplain. Now, anything you build now in a floodplain has to be, has to be above the floodplain, but it then it starts restricting. If you've got height restrictions, then how does that work with your height restrictions? It's just, it makes it much more complicated. The buyers, your buyer pool is going to be smaller because a lot of folks don't, you know, that's a, that's just a deal killer off the bat. They're going to have to have FEMA insurance. You know, I, for the most part, stay away from building in floodplains. Do you guys look at liquefaction zones, Mets, or... Uh, this is part, yeah, there's no like earthquake or fault lines going through Austin. Right? We do have fault lines. We do. Where that comes into play with us is it's part of why our soil is so different in different parts of town. So that comes into when we're doing the engineering, um, especially the foundation engineering. Uh, we do have fault lines, but we don't, we don't, we're, we're pretty good. We don't get earthquakes. We get really hot summers, but we don't get, you know, we don't, we may get rain from a hurricane out of, out of the Gulf, but we're not, we're kind of insulated from from most of the really bad weather stuff. We generally don't get the big tornadoes because of the way the weather patterns. So yeah, we don't we don't have to look at a lot of that stuff. But liquefaction, do you or I mean, you said different parts of town the soil condition is different, right? Like, how mm-hmm. often are you doing boring tests or looking at the soil condition to make sure you don't have to have like special foundations or anything like that? Every single property. You do it for every single one, even though you've done a project next door, you still do it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. We do it for every single property. Now, the engineers, as long as they've done enough work, they generally know what it's going to be, but they're not going to take the liability of designing a foundation without the geotechnicals. Yeah. Without doing that, that soil sample and study to see, to see what's right there. Yeah. We, cause we deal, we deal with the the biggest things we see, we see, you know, clays, expansive soil, some sand, and then some areas are caliche and limestone. You know, we just see a bunch of different stuff. And the design of of the foundation varies greatly, and it's really dependent on that. So you can have, you can have, you know, over here, a foundation that only has to go down two feet and then go two miles east, and you may have to go down four feet with your exterior beams or put, down, put in piles or, or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that. I mean, we do plan to have Geotech on on the show that we'll we'll dig into that. And like in LA too, they're 
you know, there's a big fault line called the Rayman fault line that kind of cuts through Eagle Rock into like, you know, the St. Gabriel Valley a little bit that if you're, if you're nearby, the city requires you to dig a 10 foot trench to see just underneath and that will determine your foundation and the structures. And um, sometimes people forget to do this. There's, there's one deal we looked at where they, they, they dug it and they go, oh crap, like we need just like all steel. We can't, we can't do type five construction on this. Yep. So it's very important to be careful and get all these stuff, negotiate for the proper due diligence period and study all this. You mentioned about Hillside. How does Hillside work in Austin or maybe Hillside is probably more to the edge of town. Like to the do, west. You, do you, how do you ensure like you have the proper utilities or if you're going to have water, you're going to end up using wells or whatever. Yeah. So inside the city limits, all of that stuff, we've, we've got all the city sewer, city water, all that good stuff. Now, as you start going outside of the city limits is when you start start dealing with that. We've got, so I've got some projects I'm actually working on west of town right now. And on, I've got four projects that I'm going to be building outside of the city limits to the west. And one of them is in a little private utility district, although we've decided to do rainwater collection on that one. Little known fact about Austin, Texas, is we get more rain than Seattle does. It just seems to come in three or four days. <laughs> so whereas Seattle gets constant rain, we get these huge storms where we may get 12 inches overnight. So rainwater collection is a really, really viable source of water here. We could have, on that one, we could have plugged into the to the sit to the private water. The decision on that was made because the private water was pulled out of the lake and it's got a ton of limestone in the lake and that sort of thing. So it's a super hard water and the roof on this house was big enough to do the collection. We had a place to put the cistern. So it was, it was more of a, a great thing to be able to do as opposed to a need to do. I've got these other three properties that are I'm building that are also on the lake. And on that one, we're going to do uh, rainwater collection. The option there would have been a well or rainwater wells can be very expensive to drill because you don't know exactly where you're going to hit the water. And the soil conditions out there are caliche and limestone. So they can, it can be hard to, to go straight down. They may have to, to do some work to get straight down. And like I said, if they, if they miss water, then they have to go again and it can just, it can just, the how cost you, can. How, yeah. How do you budget for that? There's a little bit of, uh, relying on other people's experiences like how likely are you to hit water here but you know you can't you can't be sure until until you do hit the water so on those three houses we're going to do rainwater collection as well and then on all four of those properties we're doing septic because they're they're not on any sort of city sewer septic is also something you need to know your soil conditions for because your soil conditions drive the type of septic system you can have and how easy it is to put it in and how big it needs to be and all that good stuff. And then all three of those properties have electricity. Electricity seems to be the easiest to get for, for all of them. And we're not doing anything so far out that, that we would have to rely on, on um, any sort of solar. Although probably all those houses will be solar ready. Do you guys usually get well-served letters or it's pretty easy or you don't, have to, you don't usually have to worry about that? From I'm not really sure. No, we don't. We don't usually get them, but we we have maps that show what utilities are where we are. You know, keep in mind we're not we're not buying 
for the most part, we're not going out and buying raw land. We're buying stuff that has houses at least somewhat close by. You hear more info. Um, there's already yeah there. yeah there's already there's already services there except for these ones west of town but like for instance the th- there's the three lots like i said there's four of them that we're doing west of town three of the lots are contiguous and those do not have water service on it but if we wanted to we did find out we could get water brought into it from the the city service it would have been you know $150,000 so we decided to do something different but you know if you talk about like well what can you can you budget for it? Well, we could have budgeted for that if we wanted to, and just hope for less. Well, sorry, that's me. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a lot. Of, this is a lot of good stuff. You know, there are a lot of things our eyes just can't see, and while we're under contract, we want to confirm those to eliminate those risks. I think a lot of people they think development is risky, but you know, we. The, I mean, aside from this, something you totally shoot yourself in the foot or some other body parts. You know the. <laughs> The entitlement risk is probably the the other biggest one, uh, which we'll we'll touch on as well. Like I think, but the most like the church project that I was telling about, like we addressed that and met with the city, well, you know, with plenty of time to spare in our in our due diligence. Nowadays, less people want to do the whole option thing where you know you get you tie up a parcel for a year mm-hmm. for, for some free looksy loo. But yeah, I mean, I think if you know what you're doing or talk to people that know what they're doing, you can eliminate a lot of this risk early on. I want to spend the rest of the time we have here to to dive into the math a little bit. I know we were talking about, you know, how much to go land cost and all that. And again, your market may be dramatically different. You know, we're in Austin and LA. Before we get to the math or the, the bar napkins calculations, do you usually... You you do the FAR or at least the theoretical calculation yourself, or do you get a parcel on a contract and just hand it off to an architect and go, hey, go figure it out? No, no, no. I, I do all the numbers myself before. So I do my really quick numbers as soon as I'm looking at the property. And that's a, that's my back of the napkin. And that's a that's a do I even want to consider looking at this a little bit, a little bit more in depth. If those numbers pan out, and then a lot of times we'll go do a little bit of a drive-by. So we're talking, I could have gotten the address, looked at the numbers and driven by within 15, 20 minutes to decide if I want to make an offer. And then I will make an offer, but immediately I go into my more detailed spreadsheet that has, you know, where I, I really figure out like how many square feet can I really build price per square foot? I plan to spend on the build how long I plan to hold it and what my property taxes are going to be, which in, in the state of Texas is an important thing because we're a property tax state. That's we're not an income tax state. So your, your property taxes really can eat up a lot of, a lot of money. I've got everything in there. I've got my financing costs based on some loan assumptions. I've got what my realtor fees are going to be on both sides of the transaction. If I need those in there. Um, that, so I really, at that point start, really diving into yeah. the nitty-gritty of those numbers. So if you're comfortable sharing bar napkin level, like mm-hmm. what, I mean, we we can probably find the exit fairly easy, right? Like talk to your realtor mm-hmm. or go on ref in like, okay, this is what a 4,000 square foot house sells for, 2,000 square foot mm-hmm. house sells for. But backing into the number, where do what percentage of that exit do you like to keep your loan acquisition cost to? Yeah, so I generally do not want to mess with a deal 
that I can make, if I can't make 25% on it, that's my minimum. I'm not interested. Net or return on equity? Net. Okay. That's really good. Cause I mean, I saw the national home builders survey, like a lot of people are doing 10% and they're. Yeah. I'm not messing around. It's too, it's, you know, this is the thing is, is I've got, you know, my money at play, my, I'm the one signing for the loans. I don't want to work for free. Now look, it's things, things happen, right? Like we're in the middle of a pandemic. I sold a house uh, in March when everything shut down. I had an offer that was lower than I wanted to take and I sold it and we made 20% on it. Things happen. But when you shoot for these numbers, say on paper right now, I don't want to make less than 25%. It gives you a little bit more room for if things go wrong. Like right now, lumber prices are out of control. The projects that I'm working on right now, when I put the numbers together, lumber prices were not out of control. So my number, my margins are not going to be probably what I want them to be, but it gives me a lot of room to go back and forth. Now, a lot of that's also going to be dictated by where you live, right? The, the work, the work, the areas that I work in and the work that I do, it's a luxury that I can, I can work with those numbers. It's some, you know, things may, things may start squeezing and I may have to change that number, but right now that's my, Yeah. So rough estimate, if you can recall, yeah. say we have this whole, you know, 100% was the exit. We got commissions and that were and stagings and all that. I usually budget 7%, meaning I'm probably paying the realtor mm-hmm. four or five and then they're staging yeah. and a bunch of other stuff. What do you kind of usually budget? You know, that's a great question because I've got that. I don't have that in my back of the napkin. I've got, and, I, and in my, in my, more detailed spreadsheet. I've spreadsheet. I've got that all in separate areas. I can't tell you. I can't tell you what that percentage is, just okay. because I've got it all lined out. But it probably. I think it probably comes in a little higher than seven. But that's because of our property taxes. You know, our property taxes here are. Uh, it's. It's basically almost three percent of the value that's dictated by the county. What about the bill costs? The, the, you know, you mentioned about lumber Mm -hmm. prices and all that. How big of the overall, you know, exit does that, does that make up for your, for your direct costs? And we'll, we'll distinguish the soft costs, meaning the permits and design fees and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny you say that because I've heard, I, I see on bigger pockets a lot and on some of the other, the other real estate communities I'm in that people are like, what percentage of my project should be land and what percentage should be build? And I know a lot of people throw out the 25%, but that just does not hold true in our, in our market. You know, usually we've got about 50% is the land and 50% or more is the, well, obviously not more, but 50% is the construction. So although it, it, again, it's neighborhood dependent. So these houses I'm doing out West of town, it's completely upside down on that. We've got a much lower percentage for the land because the the land cost is cheaper, but my construction is going to be a lot higher because the houses are going to be bigger and I've got to put in septic and rainwater and all that good stuff. So I don't, I don't have an overall, like it needs to fall into this formula. It's more of a, I need to know about what I'm going to spend on the construction. I need to know what the land costs and about what my exterior costs are, or my external costs are. And it just has to make sense. So it's not, it's not so easy that it's, well, I'm going to spend, you know, a hundred thousand dollars on land and 400,000 on construction and sell it for, you know, 800,000. It's just not that simple. At least not where we are. It may be a little bit different where, where you are or where some of our listeners are. Right. Yeah. I mean, every market's different. I was just trying to paint a picture of, you know, if you break it down, 
but obviously I think, I guess what I'm trying to get at too is, you know, sort of the residual land value, what, what people, how to break down how much they can afford to pay for a parcel of land. But let's say, you know, you're selling a land, you're selling the built finished house for a hundred dollars, let's say 10 to $7 goes to commission and all the marketing and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. And then up to you personally, if you're, if you want to pocket $10 or $20 or $25, I think $20 is a very, very good goal to aim for, um, you know, and, and again, I've seen national builders, but they're at scale, right? Like care a little bit less mm-hmm. about that. They're doing 10% and they're leverage pulling construction loans. So they are able to hit 20, 30, 20, like 20% IR on lever 30 lever maybe. And I think most people, or at least me too, I mean, I we try to keep the land cost to 25 to 30% or 25, $30 in this case. And I'm just looking at some of my numbers here too. So, and then, yeah, like, I mean, how do you estimate bill costs too? I mean, I think that is a big factor. That's kind of the first question people have to ask, right? And that's set aside the fact that you're probably not going to build this for a year or two and you have to try to forecast out, but just say, say you, you're, you're ready to, you know, you have, you have a permit yourself already and you're going to go build this tomorrow. How do you even get a sense what the, what the bill cost is in your local area? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, obviously for me, it's a lot of it's experience because I've been building. I think the easiest way to find out is to ask around. Like what, what are, what are you, if you know people that are building houses, ask them what they're building for and then take it with a grain of salt because people, I think a lot of times like to say they're building for less than they are for whatever weird reason. And then understand that if you've never done it before, you're up, up, it's going to cost you more because you don't have the relationships or the buying power for getting some of the discounts or that sort of thing. I mean, I think that's the, the best way to get an idea of what a build cost is going to be. It's not going to give you a solid number, but then before I actually go under construction, I mean, there are, there are ways to figure out pretty close. Like I can estimate within probably 1% of a project at this point. And that you go on and actually just bid out everything to see how much it costs. Yeah, I go through, I do, I do take off. So basically go through the plans and you, count every little single thing that's going to be in the property in the house uh, or in the project and you price it all out. So for instance, now you, your big, your big systems, you can actually get prices from your, from your subs, your trades. So like, you know, I send my plans out. So my roofer can tell me what it's going to cost to put the roof on it. My HVAC guy, my electrician, my plumber. And then I go through and say, you know, I got five toilets in, in this house, which toilets am I going to buy? What do they cost? Put that in my budget. I do that through the entire thing. You can do the same thing. You can do your lumber takeoff, which is very time consuming, but you can do it. Send it to the lumber yard, ask them for pricing. Now, we've, as we've talked about, the price of lumber right now is super volatile. So that is one of your biggest unlo- unknowns right now. But that's, you know, it, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of hours. But if you if it's important that you need that number to be really exact that's that is the way to do it other than that it's you know i'm building this quality for this much per foot with these features in it yeah i think i can do it for about that much money and you kind of go from there and that's a lot of time when i'm when i'm deciding whether to buy something that's where i'm at because i I can't put together a line item budget 
in three or four days. I mean, I don't, I don't have plans yet. I remember when I first started, that's the, the first thing where I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out, I'm talking to contractors, I'm talking to other builders, and there are just so many factors that go into it too, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, well, what are you building? Like, where are your plans? I can bid it out for you, take it, do the takeoff. And most people are going, well, I don't have the plans yet, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of this circular reference or chicken and the egg thing that I know a lot of people struggle with, but sounds like your advice to people is talk to other builders that are building similar things. Yeah, talk, figure out what they're doing that you like. And if you think you're going to do that and just start asking what they're building for, what's their cost per foot. And, and then ask them what they include in their cost per foot. Because some folks like me, I include everything because the engineer, I, because of where I build, I know I'm going to have to have the foundation engineer. I know I'm going to have to have structurals done. I know that I, you know, I know these things have to happen. I don't build in different cities. So there's no reason for me to separate out soft costs, vertical costs, all that good stuff. I've talked to some builders who they say, oh, well, I include, it's all vertical costs. And then I find out that they mean literally vertical. They're not including the foundation in it. Well, your foundation can be anywhere, depending on the project, it, you know, it can be a $20,000 cost or it can be $150,000 cost. You know, it's like, you've got to know what all they're including and then just kind of make sure that you're, you're trying to compare apples to apples so that you have a, a good idea. And to the question of what do you want to build? I mean, it's kind of like when you some, ask somebody, what does a car cost? Well, depends. What's the brand? What's the comp? What, what type of car? What are the features? Like it's not, it's just not a simple answer for any of those questions. So you have to, you have to have an idea of what you're building and find out what that costs per foot. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a lot to wrap your brain around, you know, when you first get started, but the stuff we touched on, you know, things that your eyes can't see, but it has to do with kind of the stuff in the title report. Number one, you know, we talked about easements and dedications, the restrictions, obviously check for links, that kind of stuff. That's, that's not just for land, that's for everything. Doing a survey, thinking about utilities. And we talked a lot about the different natural hazard disclosures, thing, things in that report that you look for, whether it's floodplains and landslides and soil reports and all that. And actually just doing a quick, quick calculation um, and obviously, while you're in contract, depending on what's more, what's really important or risk factors, you you try to firm up those numbers as much as you can before mm-hmm. you you actually close on it. So, yeah, I mean, we covered lots of good stuff today, and you know, I hope. Let me, let me are, Jason, yeah. before we before we wrap up, let me add one more thing because, like, like we've I've mentioned probably ten times in this call, things are very market specific. But if you're in a hot market and you find a property that you think is a smoking hot deal and nobody else picked it up, look for the problems. Because the thing is, is, is the deals that get passed over land, land in a, in a, or lots or houses in a market that's hot, they, they go for what they're worth. So, you know, it's like, it's like, if there's a, if there's a buyer pool, they're going to go for what they're worth. There's not going to be a whole lot of, Oh, I got this smoking hot deal. So if there's a, if there's a property that you go by and you look at it and you go, you know, nobody's bought that up yet to develop been here for a long time the price seems really great you should be asking why i was going to say the same thing i'm like how do you know if it's smoking hot deal or a piece of turd there's one we're looking yep. at where it's like this price is too good to be true there's something going on with this yeah we've i mean i've gone through all the architecturals but i think it, ha- it might have to do with their planning i don't think they got the the track map that they were hoping for because mm, uh, there maybe. were some there were some appeal reports and all that but i don't know yet but 
hopefully folks find us in uh useful you know we got a lot in store for folks the rest of the season we're actually going to batch release this once we're all done recording so by the time you're listening to this you can see a bunch of other episodes on structural engineering on civil engineering how to work with gcs architects and uh all sorts of all sorts of fun stuff that well maybe not so fun if you've been doing this for a while but (laughs) i think it's so opaque that people people are curious or you know they see a building going up but they don't they're just curious what goes on behind the scenes so please like like follow subscribe yeah and send us send us uh questions that you want us to cover topics you want us to cover things maybe you want us to go into detail on that and you know let us know what you want to hear okay yeah great well I, we will see you next time, everybody. And um, this is Jason signing and off. And This has been another great episode of Shovel Ready. Please subscribe and consider working with us. Follow us for more tips and let us know what you think of the show on Instagram at Jason underscore Shovel Ready.